Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Amen. Well, if you would be turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, and as you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's class, and so you guys can meet our volunteers uh, there in front of the classroom at the back. Uh, They'll be there waiting for you. And again, everyone else, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. As I mentioned, we're taking a break from going through the book of Hebrews, and we're going to spend some time to a look at the Christmas story from the book of Matthew. So this morning, we're going to be in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. So let me read our passage for us, and then we will pause and take a minute to pray together and ask for the Lord's help. So Matthew 1, beginning of verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, once more we are thankful for the grace and mercy that you have shown to us already this morning. What a privilege it is to be able to gather as your people every week, to come together, to sing together, to encourage one another, to, as we learned last week from Hebrews 10, to spur one another along to love and good works, to not neglect meeting together, to be here together as your people is a good gift from you. And we don't deserve these kinds of good gifts But we know in your grace and mercy, you give them to us because of the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. And so, Father, we look to Christ alone this morning as our hope and our confidence. And we're thankful that throughout this Christmas season, we can be reminded of the miraculous nature of the birth of Christ and how it shows us who he is and reveals his character, that he is the divine son of God, that he is the eternal one the one through whom and for whom all things exist. And so we fall down this morning and worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh to dwell among us. So Father, I pray that you would use this passage this morning to increase our affections, our faith in Jesus Christ, that we would learn more of who he is and that you would 
use your word to do exactly what you intend, what Matthew intended to do when he wrote these words to draw us to worship our Savior. And so, Father, we pray that you would be at work in us this morning for our good and for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we have the privilege to talk about a birth story. And, and you may think I mean the two births that happened in the last like four days in the life of our church. But that's not what we're going to talk about this morning, right? We have a different baby story, a different birth story to talk about this morning. And that is the birth of Jesus Christ, the Christmas story. Now, most of us are familiar with the Christmas story, in America anyway, in America at least. Now, we've heard in many places around the world, they have no context for the Christmas story. They don't even know who Jesus is. But here in America, for the most part, we're all familiar with at least the basic components. It's been ingrained into our culture in such a way that even if you don't grow up in church, you kind of at least know the, the basic structure, components, events, the main highlights of the Christmas story, even if it's just as a kid watching a Charlie Brown Christmas and they literally read the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke and you hear it there. Or, or even as you listen to the radio or watch certain shows or concerts, you have people singing songs. Now granted, the people often I don't think have a clue what they're saying, right? The weight and power of the words that they are communicating when they sing these Christmas stories. But nonetheless, the truth of the Gospel is in there, right? The, the, the Christmas story is contained in these songs. And so we had this kind of overarching basic structure of knowledge of this story, right? There's an angelic announcement to Mary. There's an angelic announcement to Joseph. There's a census. They have to go to Bethlehem together. They arrive there. They try to find a place to stay. There's no room in the inn. This guy is kind to them and finds them a spot. And he has this one random spot that they can go to the stable. Jesus is born. He's laid in a manger. The angels announce this to the shepherds. They come. The wise men, uh, much later, uh, see the star in the sky. They eventually make their way to see Jesus as well. And, and they bring these gifts to him, right? We have that basic structure in place. We all get the big picture story. For the most part, we all know what it is that happens. And I think that's a good thing. It's good for us, of course, to know those basic components. But what I want to remind us of, though, is that it's, it's the details of Scripture. It's what the kinds of things we're going to see this morning that give the story the meaning and the significance and the theological weight that we need to fill as we talk about this Christmas story. Now, as we look in God's Word, the details of the Christmas story basically come from two places in Scripture. We have Matthew, which is a more kind of general uh, overview, doesn't give as many details as the one other place, which as I mentioned earlier is the Gospel of Luke. Luke is where we get a lot of the details of the Christmas story. When, when people read from the Bible at Christmas pageants or Christmas events, they almost always read from Luke's Gospel. And you get a lot of the details there in Luke. But those are the places where we have these details of the Christmas story, Matthew and Luke. Both of them, however, I want to remind us this morning, both of them tell the story with a purpose. And that's what I want to be sure we remember this morning. It's true in all of the Bible. When we read narrative accounts, and when I say narrative accounts, I mean stories to just Bible that are recounting history to us, 
The goal is never to just report the facts of what happened. There's always a reason. The author has an agenda, right? It's just like the modern news media, right? Doesn't matter what channel it is. They're not just reporting facts. They are doing what? They have an agenda, right? They're trying to persuade you of something. They're telling you the events that have happened in a particular way to try and get you to think a particular way about politics or about something that has occurred, right? There's an agenda in what's being reported. And look, there is an agenda in what the gospel authors are saying to us. Luke doesn't even try to hide the fact So Luke chapter 1 verse 4, Luke straight up tells us that what he is writing, he wrote so that his audience, quote, may have certainty concerning the things they have been taught. That's his agenda. He wants to convince the people reading his gospel, he wants to persuade them that this supernatural, miraculous, historical event of the arrival of Jesus Christ and his miraculous, supernatural life actually happened. He wants to convince you of that. He wants to persuade you of that. He wants you to be convinced of these truths. And that's exactly what Matthew wants to do for us this morning as well. He wants to prove to us that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. Now, we could spend the rest of the morning talking about all the claims that Jesus made of who Jesus said that he was. But let's just think about a few, right? Jesus comes and he claims that God is his father. God is my father. He, he tells the people he preaches to and that he teaches. He says, look, look, you can be in the kingdom, but it will only be for those who call me Lord, Lord. You have to call me Lord to be in my kingdom, right? Ordinary people don't say things like that. He demonstrates his ability to forgive sins. And when they doubt that he has the right or the authority to forgive sins, when he forgives the paralytic man, he says, well, since you don't believe that I can forgive his sins, I'll tell you what, I'll make him walk. And then you'll believe me that I have the authority to forgive sins. And so he tells the man to get up and carry his bed and walk out of the room. And that's what happens, right? So Jesus can forgive sins. He can heal the lame. He can heal the sick. He goes around casting out demons. He restores broken bodies and gives Sights to the, and gives sight to the blind. He tells people, he says, he proclaims from his own lips, he says to the Jewish people, to Israel, that something greater than the temple has arrived. And he's talking about himself. Something greater than the temple has arrived, and it's me. He proclaims to everyone, if you're weary and heavy laden, any of you, if you're weary, if you're tired, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me. And I will give you rest. What kind of man can make a claim like that? He made clear that one day he would return. And when he returns, that he would be the final judge of humanity. I mean, we could go on and on with all of the radical things that Jesus claimed about himself in his life. Therefore, how he came to be in this world, how he came into this world becomes a really important question. 
Because if Jesus was born just like any other baby, then it makes all these other claims exponentially more difficult to defend, right? If he came just like any other child came, then it's going to be a lot more difficult to prove that he did all these things and said all these things and made all of these claims. However, if Jesus was born in a supernatural way, if he came in a unique and out of the ordinary way, if he was born to a virgin and came to be in the womb by the supernatural action of the Holy Spirit himself, placing his embryo directly into the womb of Mary, apart from any human action, if that's true of his birth, then all of these other claims make perfect sense. Right? If he is God himself, then Jesus' life is almost exactly what you would expect it to be. Of course he can walk on water and calm the storm and heal the sick and give sight to the blind and forgive sins and do all of these other things. So the gospel authors are very concerned to demonstrate in Matthew and Luke the miraculous supernatural reality of the conception of Jesus Christ. It helps us see the glories of Christ and it draws us into the worship of our Savior. And that's what Matthew wants to do in us this morning. He wants us to be drawn to do what Hebrews calls us to do, to draw near to Christ, to worship him because of who he is and the nature of who he is. So as we jump into Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, what we're going to find is in these eight brief verses, a significant uh, apologetic of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Now, when I use the word apologetic, just to clarify, I don't mean that Matthew's apologizing for something. No, the, the word apologetic means that to make a defense of, right? To argue for something. That's what Matthew is doing in verses 18 for the reality and the historical accuracy of the supernatural birth of Christ. So once we know that that's what Matthew is doing, that that's his intention, then we can ask a really important question of the text as we look at these details, which when you're reading your Bible and you're reading narrative, these are the, this is the question, one of the key questions you need to ask. Why did the author bother to tell us that? Why is that particular detail important to advance the story? Because if he's not just telling us a story to be interesting, but he's telling us with an agenda, then why does he tell us that? Why does he give us that bit of detail? And as we seek to answer that question throughout this passage, what we're going to see is this argument rising up off of the pages of these verses. So what we're going to find is five different arguments in these eight verses for the truth of the supernatural birth of Christ. In other words, Matthew wants to prove to us that Jesus was no ordinary baby, that he is the divine son of God, the Messiah, and deserves our praise and adoration. He's calling us to come and adore Jesus Christ this morning. And so, as I said, he packs these, these five arguments into these eight short verses. So here's just a quick few word summary of each section of this. These are the five kind of headings we're going to work through as we look at these five different arguments. Number one, we're going to see a peculiar pregnancy, a peculiar pregnancy. Number two, a just husband. Number three, an angelic proclamation. Number four, a prophetic fulfillment. And number five, an obedient father. A peculiar pregnancy, a just husband, an angelic proclamation, a prophetic fulfillment, and an obedient father. 
So let's begin there in verse 18 with a peculiar pregnancy. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So even right here at the beginning, verse 18 makes clear that Matthew's goal is to tell us exactly how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. Now he had already referred to Jesus earlier in chapter 1 because verses 1 through 17 gives the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It lets us know who his father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, and on and on is. And, and Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus from Abraham through King David down to Joseph and then to Jesus. He shows us that he is the descendant of Abraham, that he is a direct descendant of King David himself. He is the long-awaited Messiah who would come to sit on the throne of David. You see that there in chapter 1, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then... After giving those details, Matthew picks up on that reality, that birth, and says, now this is, this is how the birth of Jesus took place. So the first thing Matthew does there in verse 18 is he wants to put down a time stamp. Right? You see the word when. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So we have a time stamp, right? So it's... it's Joseph and Mary have been betrothed, so it's after their betrothal, but it's before they're married. So that's when this happens, and that becomes really important in the story. Now, there are a few cultural pieces of information from the first century that, that, that we need to understand to, to help us get at what this passage is saying to us, to understand the language that this passage is using. For example, it uses the term betrothed, which I think the only time we use the word betrothed is when we talk about Christmas, right? We, we don't use that word anymore. So what exactly is it talking about when it says that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph? Well, we really don't have a cultural equivalent to it here in America anyway. It's not it's more than engagement. So it's not accurate to call it an engagement. It is much more significant than that. When, when, when two people were betrothed to each, each other, they had already made a firm and legal commitment to each other. Right? Prices had been, uh, money had been exchanged between families, right? The, the dowry, things had happened. Contracts were in place. It was a fixed reality. It was a legal commitment. The families had all been involved. There was a legal status, a contract attached to the relationship at that point. And that's why, for example, that verse 19 says that refers to Joseph as her husband, which sounds strange, right? Because we just learned they were betrothed, but they had not yet come together. They had yet not been married, but yet verse 19 calls Joseph her husband. Well, that's because in the first century, betrothal was of such a significant commitment that they went ahead and started referring to one another as husband and wife. That's how significant the commitment was, but it was not yet marriage. So that's the period of after they were betrothed, but before they were, they were legally married, which also, by the way, makes sense of, and we're skipping ahead a little bit, but it says that Joseph in verse 19 being a just man and unwilling, put, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And again, you're thinking, how can he divorce her? They're not married yet. Betrothal, we would call engaged. Well, it's more than engaged. To break off a betrothal 
required a legal divorce. That's how significant this commitment was without yet being marriage. So that's what's going on here. That's why there's some of this confusing language. They were betrothed, yet Joseph has called her husband, and we have this divorce language, but it's because this betrothal was something we're not really familiar with. There's not really an equivalent in our culture, but that's, that's what's going on here. And with that understanding in mind, I think it helps us see what Matthew is trying to accomplish, what he's trying to prove when he recounts the story to us, that Mary is legally bound to Joseph, and Joseph is legally bound to Mary at this point. They are betrothed to one another, but not yet married. And so though they were absolutely legally committed to one another, there was no physical relationship between them at this point. There was no consummation of a marriage at this point, which is why verse 18 says it was before they came together. And before they had come together in marriage, she, Mary, was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now the whole goal of giving those timestamps is to say that something miraculous must have been happening here. Now granted, I'm sure people around them, we'll talk about this in a bit, speculated about other reasons, but here's at least the first argument for why this birth was miraculous, because it was after their betrothal, but it was before they had come together in marriage, even with these just and righteous people, and yet she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And Matthew just comes out and makes clear how this birth came to be, that it was from the Holy Spirit himself. By the way, I love this distinction between the, the conception of Jesus, the Jesus in the womb of Mary, and John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth. So this is talked about in, in the first chapter of Luke or in the first chapters of Luke. And you may not be familiar with the story, but it's significant. So Elizabeth is Mary's cousin. And Elizabeth is who eventually gives birth to John the Baptist. And an angel similarly comes and tells John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, look, you're going to have a son. I want you to name him John. And Luke chapter 1, verse 15, the angel tells him that in the womb, John the Baptist, in the womb, would be filled with the Holy Spirit. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. But he is not from the Holy Spirit. Right? There's a significant difference between that language. Jesus was not simply a man who was born and then was filled with the Holy Spirit. No, he is from the Holy Spirit. It is a divine, miraculous, supernatural conception. And by the way, just as a bit of a side, but I love later in Luke the story when Mary comes and visits Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is a little bit farther along uh, than Mary in her pregnancy, and she's carrying John the Baptist, who is already in her womb, filled with the Holy Spirit. And Mary comes in carrying Jesus, the divine Son of God, in her womb. And when she walks in the room, Luke tells us that John the Baptist in the womb leaped within Elizabeth's womb, recognizing the presence of the divine Savior. Now, the point of this text and what I'm saying this morning is not pro-life issues, but I'm going to say it anyway. Right? In the womb, this child was filled with the Holy Spirit. This person, this human was filled with the Holy Spirit. And this human in the womb 
recognized the divine Son of God living in the womb of Mary. That which exists in the womb is humanity already. And it is sinful and evil to take that life. But there is forgiveness and there is hope in the cross because of the birth of Jesus Christ for all sins, including that of abortion. So I just want to be clear about that. We want to proclaim that and yet offer grace and forgiveness and hope if anyone has had to suffer through having made that decision. But nonetheless, Jesus is from the Holy Spirit in the womb. There he is, the divine Son of God, supernaturally conceived, placed there by direct action of the Holy Spirit himself in the womb of Mary. Now, you can imagine the responses Mary must have gotten as she tried to explain what was going on, right? She's not married. She's committed to this man. And all of a sudden, we think it's probably around four months, she shows up because she'd been visiting Elizabeth. So she's probably about four months along when she begins to show, when she shows up and she's found to be with child at this point. And there's no hiding it. There's no ability to keep it from people. And questions are being asked. I'm sure she was the topic of conversation in the town square. And that brings us to the second argument Matthew is making, which is a just husband. Look there in verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling, (coughs) sorry, excuse me, And unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, just right here at the beginning, Matthew wants to make clear something about Joseph's character. He is a just man. He is an upright individual. And even that in and of itself proves something about Mary's pregnancy. Right? This was not his child. He is a just man. This pregnancy is not because of any unjust action on the part of Joseph. And and how he responds, this, this account of Joseph's response says a lot about the legitimacy of this account. In fact, I think that's why verse 19 is in our Bibles, right? This is one of those places where we ask, why did we need to know this information? I mean, you could have gone right from verse 18, she's found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, to verse 20, that an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and explains everything to him. Why do we need the historical Joseph was thinking about wanting to divorce her? Well, I think it's in here because it proves the historical legitimacy of the account that, that Matthew is giving us. So, for example, first, had the story been that Joseph had no issue with Mary's story. He just accepted it. said, yeah, you know, guys, you know, the Holy Spirit got her pregnant and we're, we're still going to get married, right? W- what would everybody have thought? That's Joseph's baby, right? Nobody would have believed them. If that was Joseph's reaction, then it would have it completely undercut the reality of the craziness of the story. So that, that wasn't Joseph's reaction. Similarly, Had Joseph responded with just public rage and anger, right? Just outright furious with this woman, then that probably would have been Joseph protesting a bit too much, right? It would have looked like, well, he's trying to cover up for something he did. He's trying to seem angry, throw her under the bus, put all the blame on her. 
and it would have seemed like Joseph perhaps was guilty of something and this, this conception was not miraculous after all. But instead of either of those reactions, we had this unique response that I think brings great clarity to this situation, right? He, he bears the fruit of being a just man by his cautious and gentle and caring response for Mary. You see, we can see that, that Joseph cared deeply about this woman. Now, you may be thinking, well, he must not care too much if he's going to divorce her. Well, we have to understand the cultural context. Right? You have to understand the cultural context. This would have brought great shame to Mary, but not only Mary, also Joseph. Had he moved forward and married her, it would have ruined his family. It would have ruined his parents. It would have ruined their marriage for their, had they continued to pursue it. In fact, they probably couldn't have even legally done it even if he had wanted to in many ways. It would have been hindrances. It would have been ostracized. And so he, he felt trapped, right? He couldn't move forward with the marriage for all the cultural and legal reasons. And yet he loved her and cared about her. And he didn't want public shame to come on her. He didn't want this big trial to happen. He didn't want money to have to be paid back and all this public reproach and, and just terrible stuff that would have happened. And so what does he do? He tries to do the only thing that he can. And the Bible makes clear that this would have been a, a just and good decision out of, from, from a caring man for Mary, that he was unwilling to put her to shame. And instead, he resolved to just try to keep it as quiet as he could and divorce her. But here's the point. Even in the midst of his gentle care for her, it's clear that he did not believe her. He didn't believe her. This man who probably knew her better than anyone else, this man who cared, her, cared for her and loved her so much that he was willing to try and do the best he possibly could in their culture to care for her and to keep this quiet. Like he genuinely had affection for her. And even he didn't believe her story. Right? So this, this is showing us that this story was supernatural. It was something out of the ordinary. It was unbelievable, even for those closest to Mary. And that says something to us about the historical accuracy of what Matthew is telling us. It roots the story, the historical event, in reality that even those closest to her didn't believe her, which is why we need step three of the argument, the angelic proclamation the angelic proclamation. You see that there in verses 20 and 21. Joseph does not believe her. Verse 20 tells us that he's considering these things. He's trying to figure out how he's going to handle this, how he's going to navigate these difficult waters, how he's going to care for this woman, but yet not bring shame and reproach on his entire family, on his parents, on his siblings. He's going to do everything he can. He's trying to figure it out. And while he is trying to figure it out, verse 20 says to us that in a dream... An angel of the Lord appeared to him, came to Joseph to try and explain the situation to Joseph, to explain him what it is that is happening. And every word the angel speaks is dripping with meaning, right? Even the first few words and how he even addresses Joseph. What does the angel say to Joseph? Joseph. 
right? This is the son of who? David, right? This is the angel reminding you, Joseph, this is who you are. You are a son of King David. Do not forget that. Right, this is important for what I'm about to tell you, that you are in the line of King David. You are in the line through which the Messiah was promised to come. Right, the angel didn't have to say that. He could have just said Joseph and gone ahead and said what he had to say. But no, he wants to remind him. He wants to remind us that Joseph is the son of King David. Second, he tells him to not fear taking Mary as his wife. He tells him not to be afraid because her child is, in fact, from the Holy Spirit. You see, this is just an honest account that God knows the consequences Joseph is going to face when he takes Mary to be his wife. You know, we don't often enter into marriage with someone talking to us right before we walk the aisle saying, look, don't be afraid. Right? That's the last piece of advice people give you, right? Why would you be afraid to marry someone? Well, there were a lot of reasons for Joseph to be afraid to move forward with this marriage. It was going to bring shame to his family because, look, nobody was going to believe her. And so all the things Joseph was concerned about, the angel knows he's still going to be concerned about. And he says, but look, don't be afraid. Do it anyway. She's telling you the truth. This child is, in fact, from the Holy Spirit. I know that you're going to be harshly judged by your community. You're going to likely be ostracized at times. People are going to think you're taking on a wife who is, from their perspective, unclean, who has been unfaithful to you. But this is God's plan for you, Joseph. This is what he wants to accomplish through you. So do not fear even though you have every reason to. Listen, this is just one place as a many in Scripture where it's clear that what God calls us to in obedience often isn't the easy path. That when we come to Christ, he doesn't guarantee our life to get easier. When we walk in obedience to Christ, he doesn't promise us that life is going to get easier. In fact, walking with Christ and living in obedience to God often means your life gets a lot more difficult. And that certainly was going to be true for for Joseph. So the angel says, look, don't fear. Take her to be your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, Joseph. She is telling you the truth. She will bear a son, which by the way, for that day, like today, we're like, of course you know if it's going to be a girl or boy, if you want to know, but like that's a big deal, right? That ahead of time, the angel is telling you that this child who was just conceived by the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit is going to be a boy. This is going to be a son, Joseph, that you're going to have, which means that son is going to be another son of David. And you shall call his name Jesus for because he will save his people from their sins. This name carries great significance and weight. The name Jesus in Hebrew means Yahweh saves. The God who saves. That's who your child will be, Joseph. That's who Mary's child is going to be. It will be Yahweh saving. He will save his people from their 
sins. He is the one we've been waiting for, Joseph. He's the long-awaited Messiah that's been promised that will come and rescue his people. But I love here, even in verse 21, it clarifies what this rescue will look like. It will not be a rescue from Roman occupation. It will not be a military victory. No, it will be a rescue from the bondage of sin that reigns over humanity. And he will free his people from it. He will free his people from the guilt and condemnation that they deserve for their sins. He will save us. He will save us, his people, from our sins. And of course, we have learned from Hebrews what that was going to cost Jesus. Joseph has no clue at this point what that was going to cost Jesus. But this is a reminder right here from the very beginning that the reason Jesus took on flesh was so that it could be torn, so that he could die, so that he could suffer in our place that we might be saved from our sins. Now look, have you ever just stopped to ask, I don't know that I ever had, right, stopped to ask this question as I did when I was meditating on and studying over this text. And I think there are numer numerous answers to the question I'm about to ask, but I think it's, a, it's an insightful question to ask. Why did God need Joseph to stay in the picture? Why, why did that need to happen? Now, I think there's some straightforward answers. Like, you know, God cared about Mary. He didn't want her to be a destitute single mom in that culture. She would have been uh, banished and, and impoverished. It would have been a terrible life for her. I, don't, I think he wanted her to have Joseph to care for him. There's certainly that practical consideration. So I don't want to skip over that. I think he wanted Mary to have a husband to help her and support their family as they raise Jesus and the other children they would eventually have. But beyond that, what we have to recognize is that Jesus being the husband of Mary and Jesus being born to Mary, uh, be, Jesus being born to Mary, Joseph's wife, is what made Jesus the son of David. That's why the angel shows up to Joseph and explains the whole situation. He's like, look, you, you have to take her to be your wife. Don't fear. This is God's plan. You are the son of David and you will be the father of the son of David, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So if we doubt the peculiar pregnancy or if we doubt Joseph's just reaction proving the reality of this Holy Spirit conception, then we have this angelic proclamation to put a firm foundation under our feet that the birth of Jesus Christ was in fact brought about by the divine power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. And that brings us to this fourth argument, which is a prophetic fulfillment. You see that there in verses 22 and 23? All this, all of it, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now we saw something similar to this last week in Hebrews where the New Testament authors are quoting the Old Testament. And when they do so, they refer to the Old Testament as the words of God. You see that there in verse 22? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken 
The Old Testament scriptures are the word of God himself. The New Testament universally recognizes it that way. And we ought to recognize it that way as well. That we hold on our hands the word of God. And what the word of of the Lord spoke there in Isaiah. Hundreds upon hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Was that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. Now, there could be a whole sermon about the nature of Isaiah 7:14 and what it means to be fulfilled here. And we don't have time to get into all the intricacies and details and debates about that because um, Isaiah chapter 7, some people say, well, it was just referring to a, a young woman. It, it doesn't have to be translated version. It can just be translated young woman because when the promise comes in Isaiah 7, it comes as a, uh, a prophecy to King Ahaz. It says, look, the Syrian army who's, who's bearing down upon you uh, is going to be overthrown. And, I, I'm gonna, and Ahaz says, well, how do I believe you, God, that you're going to actually do that? And God says, well, I'm going to send you a sign. And then it's this quote from here in verse 23. The virgin shall conserve and bear a, uh, conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And there is a sense in which that prophecy was fulfilled in those days. But there is another sense, according to God himself, according to Matthew's words here, that this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. It's often what we refer to as dual fulfillment. We will see an Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in the Old Testament, and then it is awaiting to be fulfilled at a later point in history. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus Hundreds of years after this prophecy was spoken, it is being fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ that the Virgin Mary, who was not yet married, would conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, his name is Jesus. The name they called him is Jesus, but his character, his nature is Emmanuel, God with us us. So if anyone ever says, some people try to make the argument that the gospel writers never claim Jesus is God, this is one of many places you can point them to. God has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. God is the eternal, Jesus is the eternal son of God. We've seen that in the first chapter of Hebrews. He never had a beginning. The universe was created through him and for him. And when he came in the womb of Mary, God came and dwelt with us. And the good news of Christmas is that God came to us so that we could draw near to him. This is a a restoration in some ways of what we had as humanity in the Garden of Eden before the fall when God dwelt with man in the garden. And here again, Jesus has arrived. He is once more with us, walking with his people. And it is a reminder of what one day will be when the Bible says that in the new heavens and the new earth, God will come and dwell with us here among us. This is the movement of Scripture. It is God moving toward us, and therefore we respond by moving and drawing near to God. I would encourage each of you to do that throughout this Christmas season, to be sure you are taking time 
to draw near to God, to be reminded that at Christmas God is with us. He has come and by his mercy and grace to us, he has come and he has dwelt among us. And therefore, the way we honor that, the way we respond to that, the way we worship him and praise him for having done that is to draw near to him in prayer and scripture reading and fellowshipping among God's people. It's one of many reasons why we're not canceling service on December 25th. Right? How could we take Christmas Day off when that's all about God coming to be with us, that it is God with us? How could we not gather as his people to draw near to him? That's how we respond to the good news of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so he is God with us. He has fulfilled the prophecy proving that he is who he said he was. And then we finally see an obedient father. Argument number five, an obedient father. Look at verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And there are two bits of obedience that it tells us. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Number one, he took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And obedience to he called his name Jesus. So Joseph moved forward in courage, and he did take Mary to be his wife. He responded in obedience to the word of God through the angel. But there's this interesting other aside that the author gives us. He says, look, he, he took her to be his wife, but, parentheses, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Again, this just shows that Matthew is trying to be clear over and over again, making argument after argument that this conception is indeed a divine act of God. Because what he is saying here is that God wanted, Joseph wanted there to be no confusion possible that this could any way, shape, or form be Joseph's child. So he kept his hands off of Mary until she gave birth to Jesus. Just to prove, just to prove Again, that the child in her womb was indeed from the Holy Spirit. Joseph was, in fact, a just and righteous man. And he obeyed and called this baby's name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. He was born to save us from our sins. I often like to say that Christmas really, it is a time of celebration and we ought to celebrate it. There are lots of good emotions and things to feel and to spend time with family. But in many ways, as we look in the manger, what we should also be reminded of is how wretched we are. How sinful and wicked and rebellious we are. That what it took to save us is God himself taking on flesh so that he could suffer and die on the cross in our place. That ought to be in our minds as we look to the manger of the great links God had to go to to save us because of our wicked hearts and our rebellion against him. So I would just invite you this Christmas season to repent of your sins and turn to the cross of Jesus Christ in faith. That's what this season is about. It's what we're celebrating. We're not just celebrating uh, Jesus' birth. We're, yes, that, but we're also being reminded of why he was born. He was born to save us. It's his very name, God saves, Yahweh saves. It is why he came. 
So let us be drawn this morning together to worship the supernatural, divine Son of God. That's the call that Matthew was placing on us this morning. Just like the angels announced to the shepherds in the field and said, come and see, come and worship, come and see what God has done. Matthew is calling to us this morning. God is calling to each of us this morning, including me, and saying, come see what God has done. Come look in the manger. He has come to dwell among us. He is God with us, and he has come to save us from our sins. May that be on our lips this Christmas season. May that fill our hearts with joy as we sing Christmas songs and listen to Christmas songs on the radio. May we be reminded of what Christ has accomplished for us by coming in the flesh this Christmas season. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you were willing to do whatever it took to save us. Jesus, we are thankful that you willingly humbled yourself and you came and took on flesh and all that that entailed, hunger and weariness, sickness, physical suffering. You willingly came and did all of it. You lived a perfect, righteous, spotless life in our place. You never once faltered in your faith or confidence in the goodness of God the Father. Jesus, thank you for coming and living in our place and dying in our place. God, Father, we are thankful that you sent Jesus, that you orchestrated history in such a way that he would arrive in time as the son of David, to fulfill every promise you had made. Not one of your promises have fallen to the ground. You have fulfilled them all. And that gives us confidence in your future promises that Jesus will one day return. So even as we look to the manger and we're reminded that you have been faithful to what you have promised, may we be reminded that you continue to be faithful and you will fulfill the, the prophecies and the promises that you have made to us. And Jesus, just as he came then, will come again. And so I pray that you would, as we learn in Hebrews, fill us with eager expectation and longing for the return of Christ. May we look to the manger this Christmas season and be reminded of our sin and of our need for the Savior who came and took on flesh. And I pray that you would draw us to repentance and faith in Christ, that you would increase our confidence and faith in Jesus Christ himself. And that you would, throughout this Christmas season, fix our eyes and minds and hearts on things above where Christ is at your right hand interceding for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.